Hello, welcome to the Irish Gerontological Society podcast. Uh, my name is Edel McDade and I'm the health and social care professional rep on the IGS. And on today's podcast, we have Dr. Colm Henry, a consultant geriatrician and has been the chief clinical officer of the HSC since two, 2018. Um, Dr. Henry will be actually attending our annual scientific meeting this year and he will be awarded the Presidential Medal, particularly to acknowledge his leadership through the pandemic. So just to welcome Dr. Henry to the podcast. Thank you, Adele. Just before we get going, this podcast is part of a series where we're raising awareness about our upcoming scientific meeting. And it's on in September 29th and 30th, and it's in the Galmont Hotel in Galway. You can register for the, uh, for the conference on our website at www.irishgerontology.com. And I suppose on that note, have you ever been to one of our conferences before, Dr. Henry? Yes, absolutely. I recommend anyone to go. Um, any excuse to go to Galway should be grabbed. Yeah. Particularly on Friday and Saturday evening. But um, on a more raised ideas, really worth going to. And, and looking back over the past few years, which we've erased from our collective consciousness, I've never heard anyone say after a Teams or Zoom meeting that there was great buzz or great crack at a, at a Teams or Zoom meeting, but there always is a conference. It's there's serious learning, but there's all that networking and all that with energy and ideas and relationships to build up after. So I recommend anyone who's uh, in, a, in a career involving older people to attend. Uh, most of the people we have on the podcast have worked in or around the area gerontology. And something I always ask people is, I suppose, looking back earlier in your career, what took you into geriatric medicine or why older people? Well, we're always influenced, any of us, by our own, by who impressed us uh, the most when we were training. And in my case, I trained uh, in Cork as uh, SHO initially, and I was greatly impressed by the mentors I had there, Killian Toomey and the late Michael Highland. Um, and um, I saw a different type of medicine, one that I hadn't experienced as an intern or medical student uh, up until that time. And it was uh, not just uh, addressing medical problems and good hard-edged medical problems, but addressing the totality of a person as well as illness. And so um, it likened in my mind to um, to put, to be presented with chaos, the chaos of illness in all its forms, and then putting order to it. And when I remember those admissions we had then under uh, Killian Toomey and Michael Highland, we had a system of four in, four out, but each of the four or five patients who got in every day got, got all their needs assessed. It was, it was mm-hmm. a complete, it was, it was complete medicine long before people talked about holistic care and integrated care. It was that kind of care and practice. And as I mentioned at the top, I suppose at the moment you are the CCO of the HSC and you have been for the last few years. I suppose, is there, what kind of skills did you think you brought across from your clinical background into that role? Um, well, the, when I went over from being a pure clinician to a management side to start many years before, when I became clinical director in the Mercy, and I suppose when I look back to that time, I may have been the least offensive person available to be a clinical director in the hospital. And maybe that's why, um, and maybe geriatricians have a reputation for, for negotiating for patients. Uh, and uh, and I suppose looking at the clinical context in which they work is, um, there is that training and conditioning. You have a standing back, looking at problems mm-hmm. and not rushing to judgment. And then, as I mentioned the word patients, there is a, there's undoubtedly um, people to call it soft skill, but it's a very hard skill that's honed over many years in dealing with relatives and patients in very tense yeah. circumstances. And um, so I think the greatest preparation I ever I had for 
for all that I do now over the past few years has been uh, that clinical training. It's not a, it's not learning on, on a financial or HR or all that other stuff that yeah. doctors are not trained in. It's the kind of a, a generic skills I learned as a doctor over many, many years and as a consultant at Terry Swisher. Yeah. And I suppose as maybe people looking who are doing similar management or leadership roles and are looking towards a career like yours, have you any advice for people working in healthcare and how to progress more into particularly these kind of national like big leadership roles? Like how did you feel you got to where you are at the moment? Well, I think a lot of healthcare professional training isn't directed towards the kind of leadership outside healthcare settings. Um, yeah. But those skills are transferable, as I said, because uh, clinical situations are complex. Uh, they're sometimes ill-defined, um, and but they demand people to look back. And uh, there are certain transferable skills for sure. Uh, but I would say to people is um, um, there's a lot of things I thought that when I went into management type roles initially that I didn't think were important, but I think are more important with the passing of years um, mm-hmm. and certainly uh, all that stuff about knowing the kind of uh, person you are yourself you, you hear about these Myers-Briggs assessments and so on yeah I think they're really important to know your own strengths and weaknesses because um, one thing is for sure if you don't know them somebody will spot them before you do particularly your weaknesses and then you can um, it, there's nothing wrong with being aware of what you're not good at or mm-hmm. or of what you need improvement of in fact the awareness brings you to another level hopefully and the second thing is, I would say, I think it's important for doctors in particular and uh, other health and nurses and uh, the all healthcare professionals, have, if they're going into a leadership position, to, to stand for something. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, if you don't stand for something, uh, people spot that very quickly. And uh, you'd be seen uh, as having the position or achieved leadership position for its own sake rather than actually trying to get something done. Yeah. Um, a couple of other points I think is are really important is... Um, this old thing of integrity um, and I suppose I learned that particularly during the pandemic is we had to give information to the public frequently um, myself and other members of the team and we were lucky to be in that position where we where, where we had the trust and confidence of the public for so long but that trust uh, and confidence is very difficult to to gain and it's very easy to lose and um, I think uh, that, that integrity and consistency is really important in any leadership position, be it a department in a hospital, uh, be it a clinical director, or be it at national level, because um, people, again, will spot very quickly. They'll, they'll spot and magnify any inconsistencies there are in your position, and that will weaken, weaken whatever it is you're trying to promote. The next thing I was going to ask, Colm, is what would you say are the highs and lows of being the CCO of the HSE? Um, I find um, they they all occur in one week, sometimes in one day. Um, certainly, um, um, it, it, the pandemic, in a sense, was a high and a low as well, um, because it's a high and presents as a challenge that that we'd never faced before. And I, I was lucky to work with some people who, um, particularly people in public health, who mm-hmm. um, were able to navigate ourselves and the country through that pandemic. And, and as I said, it was a privilege to be part of that. Um, of course, there were lows too. Um, particularly um, in management side, when you're when you dealing with problems that are messy, ill-defined, that don't correspond to clinical problems that you're used to as a clinician. Uh, we're trained in conditions so much as clinicians to identify problems, to um, to define them, and uh, yeah. to ring-fence them and act upon them. And in, when you get, come into the management world, particularly as sa- there's safety issues that escalate the way up through the HSE, 
uh, they're sometimes re they appear really difficult at the outset and they're, they're some of the lows I've had are facing such problems, such as the problems we faced in screening some years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. When you, you lose the confidence of the public, I and mean, people lose confidence in your message and don't trust you anymore. So, I, 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 so in short, the pandemic, a high um, but many lows at the same time. And um, the low, um, certainly the screening crisis, which happened a month after my appointment, um, yeah. and which led to a loss of confidence in screening, was, and, and it took so long to build build screening back up to where it is today from that point. Yeah, and I suppose you. When you have the more challenging days, do you ever look back and miss maybe your geriatrician day and lifestyle of going in and out of a hospital and being completely patient directed? Yeah, I miss the I miss not just the clinical uh, work, but also the interaction with people because there's a great anyone who works in hospitals will know uh, the great trench uh, camaraderie yeah. that prevails there and the and the great friendships that build up. Um, um, so they're, they're, they're great places to work and in, in a sense dangerous sometimes you end up great friends or even even uh, and people, marriages end up uh, begin in hospitals yeah. as my own did so uh, so they're um they're um it's, it's a lovely place to work and i do miss that for sure yeah. um and also clinical problems tend tend to be reasonably well defined or if they're not yeah. well defined at the outset they become well defined very quickly while in management and national roles um, problems tend to be messier more purely mm -hmm. defined and as a result take longer to fix and you, you kind of touched on it there in your lows i suppose the the screening um after that was about a month into it and just i suppose that transition from you became more of a public figure like i remember seeing you on the news regularly throughout the pandemic how have you found that transition towards being more recognizable and have more of a profile uh, well uh, on a positive side um the purpose of being a public figure was to be able to convey a message to the public at a time of great uncertainty. And as I said, I was lucky I was working with so many great public health people who understood what needed to be done. And my job was to listen to them and help uh, public health came under my um, own division in the HSC during the pandemic and to provide them with the supports and leadership they needed throughout the pandemic. So uh, it, it, to me, it was largely and mainly a positive experience because that mm -hmm. profile enabled me to pass on messages and to convey a clear a, a clear guidance to the public at a time of great uncertainty and um, so um it's it was easier to do that as you became more recognized um, and mm -hmm. people and um, hopefully trusted what you were saying i didn't find many downsides of it uh, really um, i mean there's, obviously there's a um, there are downsides with being recognized and there are downsides in social media and so on yeah uh, but i chose uh, early on to try and ignore those which i do largely and just focus and to stay grounded and focus on what i was meant to be doing yeah that's good advice and i know we're but i suppose we acknowledge at the start of the episode that your the presidential medal at the conference is in it's hugely to give um respect and acknowledge your leadership through the pandemic uh, so one of the questions here was what lessons do you think were learned and what would you or we do for our next pandemic? What would be different? Um, well, there's some very specific lessons we learned, um, I think, uh, based on um, the pandemic. One was the, um, how exposed societies are by inequality. And um, mm -hmm. so when it came, for example, just to give you one example for the vaccination programme, um, the hardest reached populations were those who are marginalised, homeless, uh, Roma, and um, some racial minorities, and so on. But um, any health inequalities, which might not be people's concern, um, 
in, in normal time became mm -hmm. all our concern during the pandemic because as we all knew to reach those extraordinary levels of uptake and vaccination which we did at 95 percent for those aged over 18 got primary vaccination that was only as good as the level of uptake right across the population so the inequalities number one mm -hmm. um and number two is um the importance of public health um as a driving force for the good in healthcare in Ireland. Uh, there's lots of great hospital sy system in Ireland, some great experts that train abroad. Um, but the greatest gains that can be made in the population are those that are made through public health interventions. I think um, most of us would understand that and appreciate that now. There's also other lessons in, in, a, in a more um, direct link to the pandemic. It is, is extraordinary what we could achieve um, despite often our own dismal uh, predictions of property of our own capabilities in Ireland and again referencing the vaccine program we never thought for a second we would get to those levels of uptake of vaccination so how did that happen well it was a uniquely um, collaborative environment the boundaries between people within the HSE and between the HSE centre and the delivery system and and all the 130,000 so workforce the boundaries collapsed as people came together to work on the one under one clearly shared purpose to vaccinate as much of the population as quickly as possible. And you do think, as Van Morrison would say in his song, wouldn't be great if it was like this all the time. But normal, yeah. conflict, normal conflict does resume. But I'd like to think we, we can harness some of those. One last point I would say, of course, is innovation, uh, particularly um, that pressing need for um, a common electronic healthcare record, universal healthcare identifier. We were found sorely lacking during the pandemic. Yeah. And not being able to identify people and the people under different disease groupings at speed for vaccination and for other purposes so um that that we, we are sadly lagging behind most of the developed world and we need to really catch up quickly yeah and then you as an individual what do you, what do you think you took from it um well you know it was uh you know i, I could i could say it was a learning experience of course it was a learning experience but i, I didn't really have time to reflect yeah. on learning or not it was it was um I, I was i was really considering myself lucky for a couple of reasons one was i had something to do i remember journalists asked me one day at the press conference after saying after giving me a tough time at the press conference she said uh, you don't you don't realize how lucky you are and um, i i can't do anything for the whole week leave my house until i come to this press conference you get up every morning and you're something to do so i i was lucky yeah. that I, I had a sense of purpose and um and something to do right through and um I was lucky to, to be part of what was a, a national response. So I, I, I consider something very positive in my life for, um, and something that, you know, I, I hope will never happen again. But um, yeah. of course, you learn things from us about yourself and not, not always comfortable, but uh, um, I, 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 I would be, perhaps be a more measured person now after the pandemic and less impulsive than I was before. Great. And I suppose we'll just take a bit of a shift now towards um, ageing and I suppose the the, the kind of topics and questions would be of interest to people who'd be listening to this podcast. Um, just looking here, Ireland has one of the longest life expectancies in the EU. Number of people over 65 is projected to double in Ireland by 2042, with the greatest proportion being 85 plus. Um, and I'm sure you know these facts. I think I've seen you present them. So as our population gets older, do you feel our health service is ready to meet their needs? And along with that, what plans are in place and what's planned next? Um, well, in short, no, and yes, you've seen the presentation, but uh, we yeah. all know those, <laughs> that's just so the, 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 the graphs going upwards. But yeah. we also, uh, in the same presentation, that's the one you're referring to, I talk about the healthcare system as it used to be, as it, as yeah. it was configured and designed, which is for episodic healthcare problems. 
And that doesn't address the needs of the population now, be it people who are older or people with chronic disease. And we're, we're frankly badly configured uh, and badly uh, aligned and culturally not totally prepared for dealing with people uh, as they age. And that's that's all of us, of course. And I was at, we're currently finalising a three year unscheduled care plan. And one of the meetings, a consultant stood up, it was a double meeting and said that um, that that older people coming to his department, uh, he wasn't trained and wasn't um, uh, had the skills for, to, to deliver their care, and it wasn't up to him to deliver the care, and that was up to other people. And this is precisely the kind of arguments we need to we, we need to re, refute uh, openly and not be afraid to take on. Um, the older people are now the purpose of healthcare and not not the problem. Yeah. And it is everybody's job, be the ED consultants, surgeons, physiotherapists in the community, occupation therapists, to uh, to ensure that they maintain the skills in, and interest necessary to provide older people with the care that is in, aligned with their dignity and expectations. Um, anybody saying that it's not their business, bar paediatricians, has no business being in healthcare. It is now... I won't say the challenge of a generation, but it's now the fact of healthcare that we that, we, that the care and provision of care to older people and the experience to have healthcare is uh, is all our jobs and not the, those who are whose specialist interest is in that of older people. So I think there's a, a cultural element, and we're beginning that with a three-year plan by mm-hmm. stating that we want we want to move particularly as a first measure on the experience of people who are over 75 in emergency departments, where a disproportionate amount of them wait for long hours, often over 24 hours. And this, frankly, is unacceptable. And we need to say so. Yeah. And actually, you quoted my next question <laughs> where you got that. I got that quote off you as well, that older adults are the purpose of the health system, not its problem. As was the reason I put that here, because the second point would be, yet we, we say that, and but yet the media coverage, I'd even say at a level public perception is that and even some healthcare professionals, as you've mentioned, there there is this general narrative that older people are clogging up ED with silly complaints or don't need to be there. And then on the other side of the hospital that they're blocking beds and this general this narrative that is that older people are an issue. And I just wonder, how do we move away? Obviously, within healthcare, there's a certain level of awareness that that's not true, but definitely from the media and the public perception that older people are this problem? Uh, well, I think uh, having said that, I, I consider myself more measured than I was before the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to contradict that now and say that we have to show an intolerance of this message. It's it's just yeah. uh, we don't say, for example, that young people in car accidents are a problem. In yeah. Emergency, in, 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 we'd like to see less accidents, but emergency departments are there to serve whatever urgent and emergency care comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, be the people in car accidents or younger, or be the older people who need urgent emergency care. So it's it's um, I I think uh, there 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 are spaces of tri- for triangulation and negotiation. But this is not one of them. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. If if your service has older people presenting to it, then you need to attune and accommodate your service to older people and their needs. There's no other way. Yeah. And uh, and finally. I suppose would they, we just touched on some of the challenges with an aging population, but I'm wondering what opportunities do you see or is there any positive slant you can see as a country, as a health system, as a society? Obviously, we're doing well. The people are living longer. That is one positive. But do you see any opportunities with our aging population? 
I do because um, I think if you can, if you combine that with our experience of the pandemic, what we saw was an unprecedented investment in what we call integrated care in the post-pandemic era. Mm-hmm. So the government invested strongly initially in ICU beds because of our well-publicised deficit there, but also the penny dropped right across the HSE and our policy level department of health that we need that that what was an, an, an urgent imperative during the pandemic to keep people out of hospitals for obvious reasons was COVID-19 outbreaks were everywhere in hospitals, that this actually translated into a need that could be expressed in terms of long-term health service needs was we needed to set up structures and services for people to keep them out of hospital and prevent, prevent them getting ill in the first place. And it, it, maybe it took the pandemic and the urgent need to do that in, in, in weeks that, um, that, that, um, that pushed um, our policymakers and our funders to say, you know, those ideas you've been talking about, about hubs of care for older people, those mm-hmm. ideas you've been about for the management of chronic disease and community, tell us that again and we'll give you the money and why don't you set them up? And that's what we're doing now. So we see 30 hubs for IPOP disease designed way back when by PJ and by uh, Siobhan Kennelly and our, our, and Dermot O'Shea and all those people who were involved in that design when we thought we'd never get the money. Now we see them being realised and now mm-hmm. it's our job sure that the benefits um, follow their establishment. So I'm confident they will because we're training more people, more healthcare professionals with specific interest in older people who will be manning these these centres and providing care in an integrated way across community and hospitals. That's brilliant. Okay, well, that's most of my questions. So unless you have anything else you want to add for any of our IGS listeners or anyone listening to the podcast? No, except to say that that urge everybody to go to Galway in September yeah. um, never never as I said uh, turned down an excuse to get to the Galway for conference and this one would be great. That's great so I suppose just on behalf of the IGS just want to say a huge thanks Dr Henry for your time today and we look forward uh-huh. to seeing you in Galway next month. Okay, my gosh, it's loud. <laughs>